0: Let us open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, please. We return to Hebrews chapter 13, the final chapter of what has been a very long study in the book of Hebrews. And if you'll bear with me for just a couple of more weeks, we will conclude this together. Hebrews chapter 13, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. The title of the message is Commitments of Practical Faith. Commitments of Practical Faith. Let's look at these rapid-fire commitments that the author gives to us, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners, as if you're chained with them, those who are mistreated Since you yourselves are in the body also, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So now we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? A large portion of the first 12 chapters of Hebrews has been given to theological instruction about Jesus, the gospel, and true faith that perseveres. Faith that presses on through hardship, that doesn't quit or turn back in the difficulties of life. The first 12 chapters have also been filled with Old Testament examples of what that enduring faith looks like. And it has been there to serve as a motivation for us to not only examine ourselves, but to also press on in the race that God has set before us. Now as we enter into the final chapter of Hebrews, the author gets very, very practical in regard to Christian living. Now, the the, the practicality and the application of the Bible's teaching on Christian living, it's, it's very important to our understanding of God's will for each one of our lives. But let me stress this morning it, and by it I mean the, the Bible's teaching on practical Christian living and application. Those things can only be understood from a heart of true faith. In other words, these commands that are given to us in verses 1 through 6 do not create a Christian life. They reveal a Christian life. So these commitments will be extremely difficult for you to follow, for you to apply to your life until you have come to know first the power of the gospel by faith in Jesus Christ. That is where we have to begin. Faith in Jesus Christ, trusting him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And when we trust Christ, when we put faith in Christ, it is then and only then that we will find the strength and grace beyond our natural ability to love people the way we ought to love them, to be pure in our hearts and minds, and to be content with the things that God has given to us. And Greer said the fire to do in the Christian life comes only from being soaked in the fuel of what has already been done. It's important for us to understand that. Our motivation for living holy lives, to follow the commands and instructions of God, are based upon the fact that we have been covered by His blood. We have been redeemed by His grace. We have been made brothers and sisters adopted into His family. I say all of that to tell you that as we come to chapter 13, we must take note that Hebrews 13 comes after... It comes after 12 chapters of intense teaching on true faith and the gospel. Chapter 13 is going to mean nothing until we come to faith in the gospel. Now, Now before we dive into the three commitments that I want us to go over this morning from verses 1 through 6, I want us to know first why God commands these things for us. And it's very simple. God commands... These things because he wants his people to be a holy people. He wants us to be holy unto himself. And it is his holiness in our lives that brings glory to him. And when we bring glory to him, we encourage others to give attention to the gospel This is our mission in life. This is why God has saved, redeemed, created, and placed us on this earth to be holy like him. We cannot be holy like him until we put faith in Jesus. But when we put faith in Jesus, he begins to make us, conform us into the image of Jesus. He makes us holy like Christ. And as he makes us holy like Christ, we bring glory to him. And as we bring glory to him, others begin to see the distinction of our life. And the difference and the redemption of God on us. And it draws their attention to desire for themselves what God has done in us. It's why we have verses of Scripture like Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Where Paul says, I beg you, brothers. I beg you, I beseech you, I beg you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies, your lives as a living sacrifice. Let your bodies be holy to God and acceptable to God. It's a reasonable service. And here's how you do that. Don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Obviously, Romans chapter 12, this is certainly not a call to imitate the world. That is not God's will for our lives, to imitate the world. But it is equally, church, listen carefully, it is equally not a call to isolate from the world. Jesus did not pray that we would be taken out of the world in John chapter 17. That's not what he prayed. He didn't say, Father, take my people out of the world. No, he actually prayed that we be kept from the world's harm while he fulfills his purposes in us in the world. In fact, John 17, Jesus said, I have sent you into the world. I haven't sent you from it. I've sent you into it. And this is because our purpose is to bring glory to God so that others might come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God has sent you into your workplace he has sent you into the places where you live into the neighborhoods that you are in the schools in which you attend he sends us into the world calling us to be distinctively different as we follow him in faith so that by bringing glory to God others may come to know him holiness is not about oh look at me Holiness is not about getting a few extra jewels on your crown in heaven. It's not your crown anyway. Holiness is about the glory of God. It's about bringing others to Jesus Christ. So for 12 chapters, he spends the attention on faith. Make sure your faith is real. And when it gets tested, don't run. Don't quit. And as you move forward and run your race and finish this which God has given to you, make sure your life is lived to bring glory to God. And he gives us three commitments here that we need to evaluate to ensure that we are doing this. So that brings us to the question, what are the commands of practical faith that we are to commit ourselves to? Let me give you the first one. Uh, The first command here, it's a commitment to love. Love. It's a commitment to love, and we see that in verses 1 through 3 of Hebrews 13. You see, love is not only the greatest commandment, so says our Lord, but love is also the greatest evidence that we are true children of God. It's the greatest commandment, it's the greatest evidence, nothing speaks more clearly of a person's authenticity when it comes to Christianity than the love that they have for others. Jesus said in John 13, 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men, all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The writer of Hebrews here in verses 1 through 3 is simply echoing what Jesus passionately taught, what he passionately modeled. And he gives us here three points of instruction to guide us in our commitment to love. And let me give you these three. In fact, I encourage you to really write them down because they're intensely practical. So we think about a commitment to love. He says, number one, here's what I want you to do. I want you to continue in brotherly love, okay? Believers, church, the bride of Christ, the family of God, continue in brotherly love. Verse 1, very clear, let brotherly love continue. Brotherly love continue. Now, most of us understand the word love here in the Greek. It's it's the word phileo, which means to uh, have a great affection for, all right? To have a great affection for. But I find the Greek word for brotherly even more fascinating to my understanding of this command. Let me tell you what the Greek word here in the original language in which the Bible was given to us. For the English word brotherly is. It's the word adelphos. And here's what it means. It means from the same womb. From the same womb. So this commitment to continue in love for one another, it is based on a shared experience. And that shared experience in the family of God is that we've all come from the same place. Have great affection for each other. Love each other. Because you've come from the same womb. The same place. And we understand that from a natural standpoint, don't we? For instance, I came from the same womb that Jared and Jessalyn came from. I know that's hard to believe because I'm in a league of my own compared to them. We came from the same womb, and yes, there have been times and can be times where they are a pain in the neck to me and I to them, but we're family, and we came from the same womb. And because we're family, we choose to continue loving each other in spite of any irritations that may develop in our relationship. That's how he spiritually wants us to understand this command. Because look around you this morning, there are all kinds of dimensions to the people in this room different skin colors, different accents. Different careers, different economic classes, different hobbies, different preferences. And listen to me, church. All of these things are to be subservient to this one truth that we all came from the same place, the same womb. Faith in Christ has made us family regardless of our differences. And when we really come to see that, then we can start being honest with each other. You don't have to pretend. And what I mean by that, and maybe I'm going to be a little bit too too honest with you, but we can be honest about the fact that we have personality differences. I can be honest about the fact that some of you irritate the daylights out of me. but you can also be honest about the fact that there are times I irritate the daylights out of you. (laughs) Get out. (laughs) Security, I never liked him anyways. No, it's true. At times we can be a flat out pain in the neck. We can be honest with about that. Just because we came from the same womb doesn't mean we like everything about each other. We don't like everything about each other. We don't. It's okay. But we're family. We're brothers and sisters. And we are to commit ourselves to keep on loving each other because of our shared grace in the gospel. And that's God's command here. And think about it in the terms of the dynamic of our own relationship here as a church. A church doesn't hold on to a pastor like me for 15 years unless you commit to love me in spite of my irritations and mistakes and weaknesses. And neither does my family commit to stay with you for 15 years unless we are committed to love you in spite of your irritations and your mistakes and your problems and your differences. That's family. We're family. And that is the type of love that he tells us to commit. continue in. God's command is this. Commit to it. It's volitional. Will to love each other. Regardless of fill in the blank. Regardless of that difference, I'm going to love him. Regardless of her irritations, I choose to love Her. And by the way, this is where forgiveness in the body of Christ becomes an easy reality. Because guess what? I have, I will. And if you're new to our church, we say it on the video, I say it often. This is not a perfect church, and we have never advertised ourselves to be, and we never will be. Because number one, we don't have a perfect pastor. And I say things sometimes I shouldn't say, and I respond in ways I shouldn't respond. Sometimes I don't say anything, sometimes I say too much. Look around you. There's been people in this room that I've offended. I've had to go back over and over again and say, I'm sorry. I'm such an idiot. I should have never done that. And by the way, some of you have done that to me too. But it's so much easier to forgive each other and give grace and be patient and kind when we realize, hey, my pastor may be a little loose in some things, but that's my brother. And this lady over here, she may send me a hundred emails about how I don't need to go to Disney World anymore. But she's my sister and I love her. you don't believe me, check my inbox. I need to move on because I'm supposed to get through three other verses here. The point is, keep on loving each other. That's that's a song, isn't it? I'm going to keep on loving you. And I want you to keep on loving me. All right, number two. Don't forget strangers. This is very practical. He says, I want you to be committed to love. All right? Keep on loving each other. And don't forget strangers. Verse two. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. So so notice the dynamic of what he's giving us here. Verse 1, love those who are inside the church family. Verse 2, love those who are outside the church family. All right, if brothers is, and it is, it's, it's the word that says we've come from the same place. Strangers is the word that means people I don't know. And so we who profess to have true faith are to love strangers by being hospitable toward them. Now, often we think hospitality is about people we know. We know. Our, this is our group of friends. We hang out together. I'm a good host of them. We get together and eat and play games and do whatever. But here, hospitality is actually about people we don't know. And the context of this command is centered on using our homes for hospitality. You have to do a little bit of diving into church history to see this, but let me just give you a brief summary. That in actual fact, during this culture, inns were known to be miserable places. They were not healthy. They weren't clean, often filled with serious crime. Many of them were ran as brothels. So, So Christians would open up their homes to strangers in order to share Christ with them in a clean and warm and welcoming environment. equally there were also new Christians who had been isolated by their families because they had put faith in Christ and so other Christians would open up their homes as a place of acceptance and friendship, gospel fellowship, new family. And this is the heartbeat of what he's commanding us here in verse 2, that we are to use our homes as Christians and our lives to serve others in hospitality. You've heard me say this on many occasions. We said this recently in a study we did together on Wednesday night. But hospitality is indispensable to Christianity. Indispensable to it. It's so important that Hebrews here in verse 2 calls us to consider the possibility that in our hospitality we never know who we are serving. Do you notice that? That there are times when God may send an actual angel to us. To test our love and hospitality, we may think we simply bought a meal for a random stranger, when in, a, when in, when in actual fact, we might have very well fed a celestial being. My wife's gonna kill me for saying this. I don't mind bragging on her because she is just this kind of person. But here recently, she told me about how she stood forever in the Chick fil A line. And once she finally got her meal, she pulled around to the red light, and there was a homeless fellow standing there in the middle. She felt so convicted because he had, you know, the sign and all the stuff. And so she said, I gave him my Chick fil A lunch. This is the kind of person she is. Now, what my wife may not know is that it's possible, it is possible that that stranger to whom she gave a lunch to might not only be an angel but she may have very possibly fed an angel with christian chicken <laughs> it's quite an amazing thought isn't it and that's the point we serve we're hospitable to, to, to all people, because we never know to whom it is we're actually serving. In fact, Jesus said that when we love and serve strangers, we are, in actual fact, loving and serving Him. Matthew 25. Jesus said, I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me into your home. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you came and visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then they said, when did we do this to you? We don't ever remember doing this to you. And he said to them, assuredly, inasmuch as you did it to one of these, you did it to me. When you open your house... Up to someone in this church that you don't know, but you want to get to know them, Jesus says, you're actually opening up your home to me. When you give a meal to someone who's in need, you're actually giving a meal to me. When you give out of your generosity to the ministry of the gospel here at Laurel, you're not giving to me. You're not giving to a building, you're giving to Jesus. Let me ask you a question this morning: Is your life too complicated? Is your schedule too busy to entertain strangers? When was the last time you invited people in this congregation that you do not know yet to your home for a meal? Or to at least have Sunday lunch together? This is basic Christianity. Watch this. As Christians, our mission is to turn strangers into family. That's our mission. So how many strangers are you turning into family? That's the call. Because people are going to go somewhere to find conversation. They're going to go somewhere to find friendship. Maybe they go to the bar. Maybe they go to a coffee shop. Maybe they go to the gym. But everyone who walks in these doors ought to find that same community here. Because we have something actually to offer them. And it's more powerful than caffeine can ever be to you. It's the gospel of Jesus. Rosario Butterfield wrote a book on Christian hospitality. It's simply called, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And some of us need to meditate on that simple title. The gospel comes with a house key making our homes, meals, and schedules available to others. It's vital to reaching non-Christians, to making strangers family in our lives. All right, number three, he says, remember those who are suffering. Remember those who are suffering. Verse three, remember the prisoners as if you're chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. So, So the idea here is that Christian love empathizes with those who are hurting. And we see that when we consider the phrase, as if we are chained with them. Remember prisoners, remember those who are suffering, remember those who are hurting, as if you are right there with them. It calls us to put ourselves in their shoes. To think about what it would be like if we were in that same place of suffering. Experience the same mistreatment or hurt that others may be going through. I think sometimes one of the reasons why we're not more helpful to those who are hurting is that we look at their hurt according to our circumstances and experiences instead of theirs. So, because we haven't gone through that, because we're not experiencing it, because we don't know what it's like to live in that economic stat- status Or that color of skin. Or that whatever. We we fail to empathize, sympathize, and to give them the love that God calls us to give them. Because we don't get it. We we don't understand it. And so the call here is, is to quit looking at everybody else based upon your life. The call is to look at our neighbors, our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ based upon the hurt that they're going through as if we were right there with them experiencing the same thing. Do you remember Onesiphorus? O-man, oh, I call him. It's hard to say Onesiphorus over and over again. Oh man Second Timothy chapter 2, when Paul was in prison, Onesiphorus, he, he sought Paul out very zealously and found him, and it was there Onesiphorus refreshed and ministered to him. There are people who are hurting and suffering, and God says, I want you to think about what it would be like if you're going through the very same thing. I want you to think about what it would be like if you were being mistreated the way that they're being mistreated. I want you to think about the way you would be hurting if you're hurting the way they're hurting, And, and then I want you to seek them out. I want you to remember them. I want you to love them. I want you to serve them. It's a commitment to love. How do we do that? I think it's our presence, our prayers, our patience, and sometimes our provisions. Just being there, praying, trying our best to sympathize, empathize. So so, so he says here, we've professed faith in Christ. Now it's time to take that faith and bring glory to God by how we live. And here's the first commitment you need to make. It's a commitment to love. I'm going to give you these other two a lot more quicker. All right, number two. Uh, We see a commitment to purity, a commitment to purity. That comes in verse 4. Now now remember, we're talking about the practical commitments of faith that God has called us to as believers in order that we bring glory to God. So when when the world sees these things in us, it will bring glory to God. It will turn their eyes toward the hope of the gospel. So he says, I want you to commit yourself to love, and then I want you to commit yourself to purity. To purity. Verse 4, look at it there. Marriage is honorable in, um, among all, and the bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now, I want to be very quick on this, but the first thing he wants us to bring our attention to is the freedom and the pleasure and the acceptance That is found in the marriage bed. In other words, within marriage there is an unfettered invitation to the enjoyment of sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. Marriage is honorable among all. The bed, the marriage bed is undefiled. Why would he even put that in there? Because on one hand, you had these ascetics, uh, asceticism, the, the idea that, that you have to withhold yourself from everything. And so asceticism taught that abstinence, even within marriage, was necessary to Christian maturity. On the other hand, you had the libertines. The libertines were those who lived life with absolutely no boundaries. And they considered sexual pleasure to be completely open even in the marital union. That sexual intimacy could be enjoyed whenever you wanted and with whomever you wanted. No rules, no boundaries. And so as it is in our culture, uh, so, so it was in theirs. You're, you're battling these two extremes. Married singleness, the idea that God has brought Two people together, and that which he has created to function within the boundaries of pleasure and freedom is inactive. And then you have this extreme over here where there is a lot of activity, but it's outside the boundary of God's prescribed rules marriage. And so I sleep with whoever, and I'll sleep whenever I want, even if I'm married. That, that's the thought process, right? The extremes. Now, I know that everything that I'm saying right now, and this verse is ascribing, goes against this culture. Some of you may be very uncomfortable with this. But we're talking about what the Bible teaches brings glory to God and joy in our lives. And here's what he has to say about purity. Sex. He says, number one, God is inviting you to embrace, embrace in pleasure and abundance sexual intimacy. The marriage bed is undefiled. It's undefiled. There's freedom there. Openness, acceptance, pleasure, abundance. And the second thing he is saying is that God commands us, commands us to keep Sexual intimacy inside the marriage covenant. That's why he goes on to say at the end of verse 4: fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So here's the message of Hebrews 13:4. There is pleasure in the marriage bed, but there is pain in sexual sin. There's pleasure in the marriage bed, there is pain in sexual sin. And here's where I want us to see this in terms of our own purity. We as God's people, if we're going to be holy to Him, if we're going to bring glory to Him, if we're going to be so different, so distinct, that people look at our lives and want to know more about the gospel, then we're going to have to commit ourselves to a life of purity. To avoid every Hint of sexual sin in our lives. Avoid every hint of it. Christian husband, Christian brother, Christian sister, listen to me. Do whatever you must do to deal with sexual temptation. And deal with it drastically. Don't pamper it. Don't flirt with it. Don't allow even the slightest hint of it in your life. Hate it. When it rears its head, crush it, Dig it out of your life. Some of you are flirting with it way too much. And it's not only going to bring a disservice to the glory of God, but it's going to bring a lot of heart and a lot of heartache, sorrow and pain. It's like a river. The river is beautiful. God created it. He wants you to enjoy the river, but the river's got to stay within the banks. But when that river goes outside the banks, things get hurt. Things get destroyed. It doesn't fulfill its intended purpose. A commitment to purity. You say, well, Pastor, I've never been unfaithful to my wife. Jesus said adultery begins in the heart. The heart. And because adultery and sexual sin begins in the heart... There's not a person in this room. Look at me. There's not a person in this room that's not a sexual sinner. I thank God for His grace. Adultery is not the end of the story. There is redemption. There is kindness. There is patience. There is grace in Jesus Christ. Sexual sin does not have to define you. What God wants you to do is to see that He accepts you. In whatever mistakes you have made. Whatever bad decisions that you have walked in. He loves you. He accepts you. His love is never changed by our sin. But He wants you to get a glimpse of how much He loves you. Because when we get a glimpse of how much He loves us, it is then that we aspire to be pure and holy like He leads us to be. Job said in Job 31, "I've made a covenant with my eyes. I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon another woman? This is radical. I know it is. It's countercultural, and to many non-Christians, maybe even in this room, it's actually completely laughable. But friends, this is biblical. To bring glory to God, we must commit ourselves to purity. Look, if you are professing faith in Jesus Christ, then by his strength, commit to love, commit to purity. Let me give you one more. Commit to contentment. Commit to contentment. Amen. Brings us to verse five. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with the things that you have. Now, this is a lifestyle. It's not just be content to have the iPhone 8 instead of the iPhone 20,000, whatever's out. Okay? It's not one decision of contentment. I'm going to be content today not to indulge in Krispy Kreme donuts, which has become a Sunday routine for me. It's a lifestyle of contentment. It's a lifestyle of contentment. We are warned so much in the Scriptures not to love money and possessions. Jesus said that the hardest person in all the world to reach with the gospel of Jesus are those who love money and possessions. Think about that. He said it's hard for a rich man to get into heaven. It's hard for someone who loves money and loves possessions to receive the gospel. Hard. The love of money, the Bible says, is the root of all kinds of evil. That is, from a heart of want and a heart of greed comes a myriad of other sinful actions just to appease that desire we have to want more. Can I be very honest with you? Of all these things that I share with you, this might be the hardest. It's hard not to want something different than what you have now. In terms of material possessions. It's hard. It's hard not to want to have a nicer car. You know, a car that you don't have to... Thank you, Lord. It's hard not to want to live in a bigger house after the number of children God has graciously brought into our lives. It's hard not to want the newer iPhone. Every time I cross a bridge over to Lake Norman, I see those boats sitting out there. Man, that is so hard. I want a boat. I don't even fish, but I want a boat. What I'm saying is I struggle too. My wife and I have even had conversations over the last couple of weeks of what is it that we really want more in life? Contentment. Now, 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 let me just say a couple of things before we wrap, us up, wrap this up. The Bible isn't teaching that we shouldn't desire or work hard to improve our circumstances. If you think that's what he's teaching here, then you're wrong. It's not saying that. Neither is it saying that we should quit our jobs and live the rest of our lives with what we have now. No, no, no. God blesses hard work. Amen? Amen? God blesses hard work and He rewards according to His will and purposes those that, desire, those that He desires to bestow good things, even as managers. The Bible says clearly that we are to take financial care of those to whom it is our responsibility to do so. So this lifestyle of commitment that God calls us to commit ourselves to is not quit your job, is not work harder, is not admire or aspire to, to, to grow where you are at. No, no, what he's saying here is that whether I get that promotion or not, whether I earn the same income I have now or not, whether I ever live in a bigger house or not, I will be content with whatever God chooses to do with me. That's the message. So work hard and go after that promotion as long as it doesn't take you out of the purposes of God. Don't ever sacrifice material possession or or sacrifice your commitment to God's church because you want more income. We understand wisdom in this regard. Work hard, work hard, go after it. And when God gives it to you, be humble about it. And when he gives any of us anything, live our lives appropriately with what he has given us. Save your money wisely according to Proverbs. And as the whole Bible says, give, 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 give generously to the kingdom of God. Everything God gives you is so that you will in return give it back to him. Use that bigger house to have more hospitality. Use that nicer car to bring people to church. Use that raise. To build us a building. Use that extra money that's come in to buy me a boat. Whatever you got to do. Give, 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 give. You know I'm being facetious if you're new here. We are not a prosperity church. I'm wearing the same sweater I've worn for 10 years. We are not a prosperity (laughs) church. It's just simply being content with whatever God does. Whatever God does. If he gives it to me, I'll be content with it. If he doesn't give it to me, I'll be content with where I am. You got it? Okay. So it comes out of a conviction that God's going to take care of me. Right? Look at the last phrase. Look at the last phrase. Here it is, verse 5. Hey, I've been out for two weeks. You can bear with me an extra five minutes. All right? Conviction that God will take care of me. Verse 5, he says, I will never leave you. Be content with what you have because I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. And because we know God is never going to leave us and forsake us, we can boldly stand up and say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Oh, but man, I get so afraid of money. I do. We're putting our last load of laundry into the dryer, getting ready to go on our trip, and we smell a burning smell, right? Right? Oh, man, that's going to be another however much money i put into that dryer. There's leaking in the corner of my bed. There's, there's who knows what that's going to cost. The refrigerator, whatever. Makes us nervous, don't it? We, we? We get afraid. That's why we're so consumed with gas prices right now. So, so let's, let's just be real for a moment. Can I get real with you? I know gas is expensive. I feel it too. But the Lord is our helper. Everyone's complaining, griping, groaning about inflation and grocery prices and everything else. And I get it. I get it. I find myself doing the very same thing. I can't even go to Chick-fil-A. I know it's Christian chicken. But I can't even go there without dropping 40 bucks on my family. What in the world? Kathleen told me it took her $85 to fill up the Acadia this week. She's now banned to our home for the next three months. Go to the grocery store. I loved it when cereal was $1.99. Now I have to check my bank account before I buy a box of Cheerios. I get it. It's hard for me too. I complain. You complain. But today God is reminding us with this text that he promised he would never leave us nor forsake us. Even when the economy is going haywire. Even when gas prices are going up. Even when inflation is rising, even when he brings a new child to your home and you weren't financially to take care of it. God says in every season of your life, if you will be content and know that I will never leave you and I will never forsake you, then you will have the peace that I will help you. What can anybody do to me? What can any economy do to me? What can anyone else, what can any president or cabinet or whatever? They can't do nothing to me. God is my helper. God is my helper. Here's the point. You want to bring glory to God and help others see the difference that the gospel can make in their life? When the world seems to be spinning out of control, hate, sexual immorality, griping, complaining, inflation. Then the point is don't gripe and complain with the rest of society. Just commit to being content with where God has us for such a time as this. This is where he wants you. This is where he wants me. And he said he would take care of me. He said he would take care of me. All three of these things are challenging, aren't they? Selfishness gets in the way of our commitment to love. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Lust gets in the way of our commitment to purity. And things, things distract us from a commitment to contentment. But remember what I said at the beginning. The only way we can fulfill these commitments to the glory of God is if our hearts have turned to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is our model. He committed himself in perfection, perfection to love those who hated him, to be pure in the midst of a wicked culture, and to be content not even having a place, not even having a place to lay his head. He was content. He's also our hope. He's our model. He's our hope. But through faith in him, he will help us achieve these things to the glory of God. Because it's not my nature to love. I'm an introvert. It's not my nature to randomly go up to someone and say, hey, let's go hang out. I'm I'm the guy that buys the t-shirt that says, I'm late because I didn't want to be here. But God says, I want you to willfully and volitionally commit to it. Commit to love. This is your family. And not only love your family, love the strangers. Make the strangers your family. And don't forget those who are hurting and suffering right now. You may never have gone through it, but you need to think about them like you have gone through it. And be pure. Guard your heart. Guard your eyes. Enjoy the pleasure that God has created within the marriage bed. But until God gives you that marriage bed, guard your heart. Guard your life. Be pure. And be content. Everything you have right now is because this is God's will for your life. If he wants you to have more, he'll give you more. And be grateful when he does. But don't begrudge him. Don't begrudge him. He is your helper. You're going to be able to pay the gas bill. You're going to make the electric payment. That may, God may bring some people in your life to help you with that. But God helps us in a myriad of ways. He helps us in a myriad of ways. The point is, even in the hardest times in life, He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And thanks be to God for that. All right. I'm done. Let's stand together for prayer.